University Baptist Church is a faith community striving to think critically, live creatively, and love continually in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. We gather on Sunday mornings at 5775 Highland Road between Lee Drive and Kenilworth Parkland. Visit ubc-br.org or at ubcbr on Facebook for more information. As I was prayerfully discerning what I would preach about on my last two Sundays with you, I had a sense of desire to return back to the first two passages I ever preached when I came to UBC. The first, our text for this morning, was the scripture I used to preach on my call Sunday, which also happens to be the Sunday after Easter. The second was from Philippians chapter 1, which was the first sermon I preached at UBC as your pastor on the first Sunday in June of that year. I think what's remarkable in revisiting these texts four years later is just how much God has done in and through us and how these texts can speak to us in new ways about where we are and where we are headed in our paths. So for this, take a look at the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verse 19. The context of our passage is fascinating, as we saw from Easter Sunday, focusing in specifically on Mary Magdalene, who discovers an empty tomb, reporting back to the disciples who did not believe her. And some of them run to the tomb to see for themselves, but they're left without the answers yet, because the risen Lord had not appeared to them. So they're left with this sense of anxiety and hopefulness. Could it be that what he had promised had come true, or did someone simply steal his body? And we know from our text from last week that Mary Magdalene hung around the empty tomb only to be encountered by the risen Lord, calling her to go forth to tell the disciples, which is what John reports in chapter 20, verse 19. On the evening of the first day of that week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, John reports that the disciples are locked inside a house. They boarded up the doors and trembled in fear of the Jewish religious leaders that had murdered their Lord. They are physically locked in, but they're also emotionally and spiritually locked in. They're locked into the disappointment in Jesus' failed promises. They're locked into the regret that all this was for nothing. They're locked into fear for their lives. And the disciples are also locked into the bewilderment of these crazed reports coming from their female companions that Jesus, of all people, their Lord that had been brutally tortured and executed, had all of a sudden met them at the tomb. Could it be that he has risen from the dead like he had done for other people? Could it be that what he had promised had come true? Could it be that he really was the Son of God? Just imagine the combination of those emotions that they're feeling in this moment. Fear and anxiety and turmoil and heartache and disappointment and frustration and resentment and anger. But they were also feeling hope and elation and strength and fulfillment and victory. It's as though the disciples are caught between the threshold of anxiety and hope. Have you ever felt like this before? Have you ever felt simultaneously anxious and elated, inept and creative, or uncertain and hopeful at the same time? You might have felt this when you were trying to decide what college to go to, 
if that person you were dating was the one you wanted to spend the rest of your life with. If you're ready for children, that feeling when you stare into your child's eyes for the first time, deciding whether you needed to make that career move and if it's the right one. You might have felt this in your spiritual journey of whether you felt like you could step out in faith and believe in Jesus and his way. The ongoing process of giving up the things you once thought mattered to discover what matters through God's eyes. The changing of habits that bring brokenness into our life and the forming of new habits that reflect Jesus. The changing of our mind about certain people and issues and the scriptures that inform our understanding of life. I'm, I'm not going to lie, I have that feeling right now. It's that, that feeling of anxiety and excitement, that feeling of fulfillment and yet the unknown, that feeling of sorrow and sadness because of the relationships we have here and the joy that comes with it at the same time. Four years ago, we were sitting in this very place with our family as we were trying to respond to your call to leave a church start that I had pastored for eight years to move our family 951 and a half miles away from everything we had known. There was a, a huge complexity of emotions that were swirling on inside of all of this. Will this work? Can our family adjust? Is the church willing to go with me into something new? Can I even lead them there in a healthy way? You see, life offers us these moments in our journey in which we sit at the threshold between anxiety and hope. The church is in this in-between space of where we have been, where we are, and where we are going. One word to, ex to express what this is, is is a word called liminal. Liminal comes from the Latin word limen, which means threshold or space between. It's originally associated with a stone placed at the threshold of a door for crossing from one space into another. It's often described as this in-betweenness. Liminality is that space between where you are and where you're going, the present and the future, the old and the new, the familiar and the unknown. Out of his work called The Rites of Passage, anthropologist and folklorist Arnold von Jenup coined this term, liminality, and he explores the concept of culture and human experience as passing from one stage into the next through the rituals of life. And he argued, life itself means to be separated, to be reunited, to be changed and formed in conditions, to die and to be reborn, to act and to cease, to wait and to rest, to begin University Baptist Church. We've been on this journey together for, for over four years. We've been having a sense of positivity and health we faced a global pandemic coming out of the other side, hopefully in a much better place than before it all started. But now the journey takes us, well, we're, we're moving forward, but we feel like we're moving into the unknown. The prophetic words of Elsa of Arendelle, one of the most extraordinary Disney characters from the Frozen movies, she sings, I've had my adventure, I don't need something new, I'm afraid of what I'm risking if I follow you into the unknown. What never ceases to amaze me is just how much can be learned from children's movies. <laughs> I probably was not really to admit that on the 967th time that that song was played in my house shortly after Frozen 2 came out. <laughs> again and again and again and again. And yet Elsa is not wrong. The unknown raises a gambit of emotions. 
from disappointment to frustration, from egotism to timidity, from grief to anxiety, doubt to fear, depression and paralysis. And what's fascinating about the human body is that these are all natural psychological responses to the unknown. Psychologically, our bodies respond to the unknown with an equal myriad of ways, including and not limited to increased heart rate, unregulated breathing, a surge of adrenaline resulting in that famous flight, fight, or freeze, avoidance of the moment, people associated with loss of sleep and intestinal discomfort and chest tightness. And if these are the diversity of ways that our bodies respond to the unknown— Imagine the emotional and psychological response of an organization such as a church when we face the unknown. It wells up all sorts of fascinating things that begin to happen inside us. An organization like the church, one that's filled with relationships in which we're intermingled in our lives together, and yet we're all complex human beings in which we all respond differently to these things that are happening in our life. So maybe we can connect with the disciples. We're caught in this in-betweenness of what was, what is, and what will be. But look at what happens in the latter part of verse 19. It states, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he had said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive one another's sins, their sins are forgiven. And if you do not forgive them, you are not forgiven. We often deify Jesus to the point that we forget that he is 100% God and 100% human. And in this moment, you get the human side of Jesus maybe intentionally scaring the wits out of the disciples when they're locked inside this room. He just appears out of nowhere, and you just imagine they jumped out of their robes, if you will. Jesus knows the threshold the disciples were at emotionally. He knows that they're feeling anxiety and loss and grief over his death, and yet the hope of these stories of his resurrection. It is therefore no wonder that the words that Jesus first speaks to them are words of peace. He didn't come in and greet them. Hey guys, what's up? How are you doing? Now, Jesus uses very specific words here. He uses the Greek word arene, which can be translated into a lot of different ways, such as tranquility or harmony between individuals or security and prosperity or a blessed state or devotion, or as we simply translate it, peace. But peace is more than just an emotion. It's a state of mind. It's a way of life. Peace is not the, abund- or not the absence of heartache or conflict or anxiety, but it's a conscious and psychological and spiritual mindset. The Hebrew people had a fascinating word for peace. It's the word shalom. It means complete or whole. There's times in the Old Testament in which shalom refers to a single brick that has no uh, deformities or flaws. Or at other times, it refers to an entire wall that is complete. Or at other times, shalom refers to a person's well-being. Shalom is a a complex term which recognizes the interconnected parts of who we are as human beings to God, but also our relationship to each other and the world around us. 
peace is not the absence of conflict and violence and unknown and entangled webs and devastating loss. Instead, shalom is finding wholeness within the fracturing and incompleteness of our lives. And Jesus wants to restore wholeness to the fracturing of the disciples' hearts and minds as they're facing a few days of terror and grief and hope. He wants to settle them in and, and, and to settle all those raging emotions within them. And God desires to bring peace into our unknown and into our uncertainty. It, it's a state of mind that recognizing that life is, again, not free of changes and frustration and difficult questions, but it's a faith that God will bring us through such things. As one author put it, it is peace rooted in the trust that the life of Jesus gives a deeper and wider and stronger and more enduring than whatever current circumstances we are experiencing. It's God saying that this is not the last word of where you are. And after he had spoken peace into their lives two times, mind you, John reports that really curious thing in which it says, he breathed the Holy Spirit on them. What did that look like? What did that feel like? I'm reminded of the creation narrative, Genesis 1, where it tells us that God spoke and creation became. This is the Hebrew word amar. But in Genesis chapter 2, it says something a little bit more intimate because it says that God breathed life into existence. This Hebrew word nefach. Speaking into something from a distance is a different kind of act, but breathing life into the nostrils of a being is, is so much closer. It's much more intimate. And Jesus breathes that same Holy Spirit that, that, that hovered above the primordial walls, uh, uh, waters of creation, that filled the lungs of humanity, that, that called forth Moses from a burning bush, that parted the waters of the Red Sea, that empowered Elijah to call down fire from heaven that empowered Esther to stand up for her people before the king, that strengthened Mary to carry God's child into a world, that anointed Jesus to proclaim good news to the poor and freedom to the prisoner and recover sight to the blind. Jesus breathes life into us. And this is the powerful truth that we don't need to miss. God is continually breathing life into us, especially when we are facing the unknown. John teaches us a powerful truth. God breathes life into us. The life of the Spirit breathed on the disciples is a beautiful pattern that God will repeat billions of times here and after. And even if we don't feel God is anywhere near us, God is as close to us as breath. Wherever you are, whatever you're experiencing, the act of breathing reminds us of God's presence among us and within us. For many, we believe that God is up there, distant and remote. To get God's attention, we have to do something very special or significant, but that's not God's nature. The post-resurrection narrative tells us that God is as close as breath in our lungs. Everyone just draw a breath in your lungs and out. Feel that life abiding within you. That's God's presence within you reminding you that God is here, that God is empowering you, that God will guide you in faith 
to where God is calling you to next. But look at verse 24. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We've seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my fingers where the nails were and put my hands in his side, I will not believe. What's Thomas been up to this entire time? (laughs) Can you imagine that kind of feeling of being left out? This is the ultimate feeling of being left out. Jesus had resurrected from the dead and appeared before the disciples in a locked room, and Thomas missed it all. In fact, he's so overwhelmed by all this crazed lunatics of his friends saying all these things that he says he won't believe their story unless he feels the wounds of Jesus, mind you, just like they had the opportunity to do themselves. But look at what happens in verse 26. A week later, his disciples were in the house again. And Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your fingers here. See my hands. Reach out your hands and put them in my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Before we get to the beauty of the story, there's one thing that we have to point out. Jesus did it again. (laughs) He scared the wits out of the disciples again. But did you also catch the fact that apparently his presence among them had not changed their hearts and their minds because they're still locked away in a room hiding in fear? It's like we're just picking the text back up, but one week later, they're in the exact same place. Jesus had breathed the Spirit in their lives, and yet it seemed to have not made an impact because they're still locked into those difficult emotions. You know, historically, we railed Thomas for his unbelief, but in reality, the disciples were just as unfaithful, allowing themselves to not be empowered by the Holy Spirit and to be locked into this room full of fear. In reality, this is not just an opportunity for Thomas to see and to feel and trust. This is an opportunity for all of them to see and to feel and to trust that Jesus was really alive and that his truth was transformational for their lives. As one author put it, this, I think, is the way that we assume faith should work. Yet, perhaps, we've got doubts and questions and fears. But then God arrives, and all those fall away, replaced with joy and wonder and, of course, unshakable faith. I'm with Thomas. He's not far off for how many of our temperaments work. He struggles with this report that's given to him. He, he asks questions and pokes at it. Wouldn't you? If you hadn't witnessed first hands like your friends did, that the Lord had risen, and in fact it had been eight days later from their experience that they encountered Jesus again. You see, faith is not a doctrinal statement. Faith is experiencing the unbelievable and believing it anyways. But faith isn't perfect, and it's not supposed to be. May we recall in Mark's Gospels in which Jesus talks about uh, a sick boy, and, and the father of the child begs Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. It's only natural when facing uncertain next steps to ask difficult questions. 
And Jesus tells us in the Gospels that we're called to have a faith of a child, and we've always assumed that this means to have a sense of uh, innocence and, and dependence on God. But have you ever been around children before? They'll ask you a thousand questions. Why? How does it work? Why'd you make that decision? That's the best when you're trying to, like, scold your children and correct them on something. They're like, yeah, but why? Oh, don't ask me that question right now. I'm going to go on a limb and say that Jesus knew children, and he knew they asked tough questions. There's beauty in poking and prodding our faith. Faith should not be assumed. It should be examined. As the great J.R.R. Tolkien put it, faithless is the one that says farewell when the road darkens. I want you to pull out this balloon you grabbed on the way this morning. And if you're at home, I'm sorry, just imagine you have a balloon in your hand. I want you to take a deep breath in and blow up that balloon. Pinch the valve. Don't let any of the air go out. All right, we've got some super red faces in here. Don't overdo it, okay? You can't see the air inside of that balloon, but, but something's in there, is it not? You, you, you are holding this empty thing, and now it's filled. And even if you were to let the air out, go ahead and let the air out. top 10 sounds you never thought you would hear in a sanctuary. My favorite is somebody who will remain nameless, just let all the air out on their spouse, which is awesome. So. Now, do me a favor. Go ahead and hold onto that balloon again one more time and fill it up again. And, and this time I want you to close it. Now I'm going to ask you to do something silly. Give it a toss in the air. This once empty piece of latex is now the source of excitement and fun. Go ahead, hit your balloons wherever you want to. You have permission. An ordained minister is telling you to do it. Have fun. Now, these balloons represent something so much more. They represent the liminal space that we find ourselves in. For one, we're reminded that God is filling us with life. And two, we're reminded that the void of the unknown, God can fill us with unexpected potential. The disciples in our text were facing this pivotal moment of faith. What was once was is no longer what they'd experienced in the past was not going to be what they were going to experience in the future you can't undo the crucifixion and the resurrection but we will soon come to pass in the disciples life as they were filled with this unbelievable unexpected potential because jesus is going to ascend from them in 40 days and therefore all these things had to come to pass 
But the disciples chose to be filled with the Spirit of God, to be filled with peace and joy and great potential, allowing God to use them as extraordinary vessels of his goodness in this world. In just a matter of chapters, they're going to lead hundreds of thousands to come follow Jesus. How often in our lives do we feel formless and void, an empty balloon? And yet if we allow the Spirit of God to fill us with life, what amazing potential might happen through us? individually and collectively as a faith community. When the church finds itself on the precipice of a liminal journey, we are reminded of whose church this really is. This isn't my church. This isn't even your church. This is Christ's church. And last time I checked, Christ's church has stood the test of time for over 2,000 years now. Can we allow the Spirit of God to fill us with something more. To fill us with something new and unexpected, responding and processing and understanding and acting out in faith. That doesn't mean that this is going to be an easy process. Because the liminal journey out of what is certain and into the unknown is difficult because it, it, it plays with our existence and our mentality and our emotions and our physicality and our sociability and our spiritual ability. It will destabilize us and disorient us because we're not in control of what's happening in our lives. But the journey will bring out the best in us if we're willing to trust and respect each other along the way. What comes next in the liminal journey has no certainty concerning the outcomes, but rather it's about entering into it with a sense of openness and faithfulness that God is going to do something amazing here. I'm reminded of an exchange from J.R.R. Tolkien's The Hobbit in which Gandalf the Grey responds to Bilbo Baggins of the Shire with his question of whether he would return from this great journey of danger and dragons and treasure. To which Gandalf says, No, but if you do, you will never be the same. We're invited into a liminal journey with God. And if we go we most certainly will not be the same. But what will happen if we stay? Will we follow God into the unknown? For our response this morning, we invite you to enter to a time of meditation. And maybe for you, that means spending some time in prayer, praying to God about how God is speaking to you, the the text this morning. Maybe for you, that means writing some thoughts down. Maybe for some, it means you need to turn to somebody and process out loud what you're experiencing. Let's enter into this sacred space of response to God this morning.